God, we're thankful for uh, your goodness and your grace to us, and we thank you for the chance to meet and to study, and we ask that you would give us wisdom, um, help us to understand uh, what these chapters are saying, and help us to understand why they matter, and help us to be people who respond uh, in the way that the book is calling us to respond, with faith and with endurance and with patience and with hope and with worship and with uh, proclamation, uh, we pray that you would be honored in our lives as men and in our families and certainly in this church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last month we talked about Revelation 10 and 11. And we talked about some pretty interesting things. We talked about John eating a scroll. And we talked about uh, John being sent to measure the temple. And we talked about the two witnesses and their testimony. All sorts of things. And commentators really go wild with some of those images and some of those descriptions in Revelation 10 and 11. And I'm just telling you that if they go a little bit wild with 10 and 11... The train goes off the tracks in 12, 13, and 14. And I'll admit to you that one of my guilty pleasures as I've been studying Revelation is Google Images. And going to Google Images and typing in, I did this today, I just typed in Revelation 12 and looked at the images that came up. Revelation 13 and I looked at the images. Revelation 14 and looked at the images. And the images for these chapters are the wildest uh, in the whole book. You've got uh, up on the top left, Michael wrestling with demonic forces in the heavenly places. You've got dragons with heads and uh, dragons coming out of the ground, coming out of the sea. Over here, you've got a dragon about to attack a, a woman, and you've got a scene of worship. All these images from Revelation 12, 13, and 14. And I hope uh, we can read them in the context of the book and make sense of them and see why these amazing images, they are amazing images described in these chapters, why it matters for us. So in the book of Revelation, uh, as we've gone through this study, we've talked about seven sevens. The book is built on an outline of seven sevens. Uh, there is a prologue at the beginning, and then there's seven letters to seven churches, and then there's one vision in chapter four and five. It's really one vision, uh, two that are connected that describes who God is. He's the one who sits on the throne. He's the lamb. He's the one who's redeemed people uh, with his blood. And we've covered the seals and the trumpets. And tonight, we're kind of right in the middle, right in the heart of the book. Seven visions of conflict, and you can see what's ahead of us. So just to be very clear, here are the seven visions uh, of conflict that we're going to talk about. There's a pregnant woman and a red dragon. That's vision one. There's a war in heaven. There's a beast from the sea, there's a beast from the land, there's a vision of the lamb with 144,000 people with him, there are angelic messengers, and then there's a final judgment. So those are the seven that we're going to cover. Uh, a couple of preliminary things I just want to remind you of. The book of Revelation is cyclical, okay? It, it keeps moving back in on itself, and it describes the whole scope of period of history from the ascension of Jesus all the way up to the return of Jesus. And then it pauses, 
and it goes back and it does the same thing again. So we've talked so far about seals and trumpets, and both of those have brought us all the way to the end. So when you go to 8.5, the end of the seals, and you go to 11.10, the end of the trumpets, and this is moving ahead, when you get to 16.18, the end of the bowls, you read a phrase that sounds like this, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, uh, and an earthquake. And that is Mount Sinai imagery. All of that, word for word, straight out of Exodus. And it's describing to you at Sinai when God came down and met with his people, these are the things that happened. And each of these phases of the book end with the same phrase to describe to you, this is God coming down to be with his people, and these are the things that John witnesses in his vision. And it's John's way in each of these sevens of bringing you all the way to the end of human history. And then we've talked about different camera angles in the book. It's like he pauses and he steps back and you reset the camera angle and he starts the whole story again from a different perspective. So I have a quote here from Schreiner and he says, All history concludes with the seventh trumpet and the third woe. That's what we just finished last week or last month. Uh, but John steps back so that readers can survey history from another perspective. The perspective is cosmic, encompassing the battle with the devil, the emergence of two beasts, and visions of heaven and earth. Um, one of the things I've tried to do in this study, in this series of studies, I've tried to admit to you when I'm not certain about something. And tonight I'm going to do that at several points. I'm going to say, hey, this is what I think, but... I reserve the right to change my mind. And then there's other things I'm going to say to you. I'm pretty sure about this, and most people agree about this uh, particular thing. One of the things you'll find if you read commentators, they all seem to agree, all of them, that 12, 13, 14 are a unit. They all go together. And they all seem to agree that in that unit there is a seven, seven things described. I Just being honest with you, they chop it up differently and how they count the sevens and where they demarcate the verses stopping and ending in each of the sections. So you may find some variation if you're reading a commentary or digging into a sort of a critical work uh, of the book. This is really important on the front end for you to be reminded of. As we're looking at these sevens, John is describing to you things that are real. And in Apocalypse... It's literally an unveiling. It's a revealing of something that you can't see to be true or real. But John is giving you eyes to see what is real. And so the things that he's describing are real things. But that doesn't mean all the images and the word pictures that are painted are to be taken exactly literally. But what John is doing is saying, you may see... Governments and religions and churches and powers and conflict in the world. And it may look like one thing to you, but this is the true nature of the thing. And he's pulling back the curtain to help you see that. So this is Nancy Guthrie. Uh, the ladies went through this book. In Revelation 12 through 14, the curtain is drawn back for us so that we can see the unseen reality of a war that took place in heaven. And a war taking place right now in this world and in your life, whether you realize it or not. You see, you have an enemy who is engaged in a war for your soul. 
His goal is to alienate you from Christ and claim you as his own. It's not that he cares about you. He has no good intentions towards you. He simply wants to use you in his futile attempt to defeat God. Your enemy wants to convince you that Jesus really isn't worth your allegiance or your obedience. Okay? For all the wild imagery that we're about to talk about, the point is not to develop prophecy charts and to be able to figure out who is the Antichrist and is the mark of the beast a tattoo or a microchip or what is it? The point is to say there is a spiritual conflict waging in the world and you are part of it whether you realize it or not. This is what John's doing, pulling back the curtain, to show you this is real. And you're in the middle of this if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand what's really taking place and you need to understand what the stakes are. So this is not just debatable points of obscure theology that we quibble about and argue about. This is your very soul in a war, in a conflict being described in these chapters. So, take your Bible. We're going to read all three of these chapters, not at once, one at a time. And it's a lot of reading. Three chapters out of the Bible to read is a lot. And I would just remind you that the book begins talking about a blessing for those who read the book. So, it's good to read the book. We're in church, it's the Bible, it's good for us to read it, and uh, we're going to read each of these chapters and work through them in turn. So, Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven, or of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Plain as mud, right? Easy stuff. Uh, Shriner says this is one of the most important dramatic chapters, uh, Revelation 12, John pulls back the curtain and he shows us a cosmic conflict that explains and unpacks what is happening on earth. I'm always amazed at how many commentators say that this is the most important chapter in the book of Revelation, and a lot of them say this is the most important chapter in the Bible. If you can wrap your head around what John's describing in Revelation 12, it will help you understand a lot of what the Bible's describing. So we're going to work through these images one at a time. We'll start with the pregnant woman and the great dragon. The pregnant woman in this vision describes the people of God who were chosen by God and used by God to bring the Messiah into the world. So as you read this, it's not uncommon for your gut or your initial reaction to say a woman who gave birth to a child and he's going to rule the nation, so the woman must be Mary. And Mary would be included in what the woman represents, but the woman represents more than Mary. The woman represents all of the people of God. We would say Abraham's family, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. They're chosen by God and used by God to bring the Messiah into the world. Now, I gave you some verses, and we're not going to chase all those out. Let me just point out these verses and why they're listed here. Genesis 37, a man named Joseph has a dream. And in his dream, his parents are described as the sun and the moon, and his siblings are described as the stars. And this woman is clothed in those images. It's directly pulled out of Genesis 37. And that's John's way of not quoting Genesis 37, but alluding to it and saying to you, I'm talking about this family, this family that Joseph dreamed about. This is the people of God. Uh, Genesis 3, Isaiah 7, Psalm 2, all promises about a child, someone who would be born, someone who would crush the serpent's head, someone who would be a prince of peace, somebody who would rule with a rod of iron. All of those images and those verses are being alluded to here in this passage. On top of all of that, I didn't give you any verses for this, but the Old Testament regularly describes the people of Israel as God's wife, usually as a faithless wife, an adulterous wife. But that's the image of Israel being this woman and God is using these people to bring the Messiah into the world. So that's the woman. Uh, we talked about a few more details related to that when I preached on this passage at the end of last year. And you can dig into that later if you want to. Let's talk about the dragon. The great red dragon is Satan, a.k.a. the ancient serpent, a.k.a. the devil, a.k.a. the deceiver of the world, a.k.a. the accuser of believers, and clearly in this vision, he wants to destroy the Messiah. It's a graphic image that John sees when this pregnant woman is about to give birth and the dragon is crouching, ready to devour the child. It's the kind of thing that you can read in Revelation and not think that much about. But if you actually had a vision like that, that's pretty striking stuff. 
uh, I sent my kids to Amarillo over spring break, and my mom took them to an escape room. And she sent my kids and, and their cousins into this escape room, not knowing it was a zombie apocalypse escape room. And they got in there, and they locked the doors, and they turned the lights off, and the black lights hit, and there were zombies and blood on the walls, and they got out really quick. They just went crazy, and they got the kids out. And those images were terrifying. I'm just telling you, this is a terrifying image to see a woman who's in labor. That's about the most vulnerable position a woman can be in. And there's a dragon, a great red dragon, ready to devour uh, her child, the Messiah. So this is Satan. Um, I gave you a few verses to trace down on your own. Genesis 3, I would just draw your attention to the fact that in your brain... You think Genesis 3, that's the story of Satan in the garden. But in Genesis 3, he's not called Satan. He's not called the devil. He's just called a serpent. The serpent comes. And Revelation is taking a bunch of strands throughout the whole Old Testament and the New Testament and tying them together here and making it very clear that this ancient serpent is Satan. It is the devil. It's the deceiver. It's the accuser. Um, I gave you verses in John 14, Ephesians 6, and 2 Corinthians 4. In the New Testament, Satan is described as the ruler of this world. He's described as the God of this world. He's described as the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit that's now at work amongst the sons of disobedience. John describes him here as red. Most commentators say that's an allusion to blood and violence and... All of those sorts of things. He has seven heads and he has ten horns. I don't think you need to parse that out. I just think you need to understand he has power. Seven heads, ten horns, the diadems, he's powerful. uh, And that's clearly part of what what John's trying to communicate about this great red dragon who is Satan. Um, Examples of this dragon being at work throughout history crouching to destroy these people and to destroy the Messiah. You could go back to the book of Exodus and you could talk about Pharaoh saying, throw the babies in the Nile, all the baby boys in the Nile. You could go to the time of the exile and you could think about Haman saying, kill all the Jews, round them up, kill every last one of them. You could go to the New Testament and you could think about Herod giving the order to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, kill the Messiah. This dragon has one overarching aim and it's to destroy the child uh, the the man child of this woman so the woman the dragon the stars the stars of heaven who were cast down are notice I put this in parentheses likely meaning I think meaning I'm not entirely certain rebellious angels who defected with Satan in a primordial we'll just call it a fall When it comes to the fall of angels, the Bible says less about this than most people think it does. And the things that the Bible says are not as clear as a lot of people think they are. And my strong suspicion is that you have ideas in your head about where Satan came from and how he fell and the nature of that and who he was and what happened and the angels and all the rest. And in your brain, you think, oh yeah, the Bible says that. 
And I'm just telling you, when you look up the verses that support this idea that I think is right, I'm just being honest with you, they're not all the most straightforward verses in the whole Bible. For one thing, I think the majority of modern commentators don't agree with this. Most modern commentators look at this tail sweeping a third of the stars, and they think, and it's a really strong argument, that it's an allusion to Daniel 8. And in Daniel 8, this very same thing happens. And in Daniel 8, it's clear that God's people, the Jewish people, are the stars who are swept down and they're being killed and persecuted. It's not a reference to angels in Daniel 8. Everyone agrees on that. So if John's referring to Daniel 8, then you've got to say, Daniel 8 seems to be referring to persecution of God's people. Maybe this is the same kind of thing. Uh, but other commentators... I would say a minority, not a tiny minority, but a minority think it's actually a reference um, to fallen angels. And that's not the consensus scholarly view, but it's definitely the consensus popular view. When people talk about, oh yeah, Satan, he took a third of the angels with him. This is one of those passages that people would reference. So very quickly, let me throw out a few things for you. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. This is as close as you'll come in all of Scripture, to finding anything that describes Satan's fall. And what I'm telling you is that if you look at Isaiah 14, it's about the king of Babylon. It is about a human king of Babylon. And if you look at Ezekiel 28, it is about a king of Tyre, a human king from Tyre. Both of those passages describe real human kings, and they're in the context of lots of other human kings being described in human nations. However, when you read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, there are some details that make you think maybe something else is going on here also. So it's kind of like there's prophecies in the Old Testament, like God telling Isaiah that your wife's going to have a son. A young woman, a virgin is going to have a son, and you're going to call him Emmanuel. And this is going to be a sign for you that this army that's attacking you is going to be defeated. You read that in Isaiah 7 and 8. Isaiah and his wife actually had a son. And it was about their son. And it's about Jesus. Both. That's how Old Testament prophecy often works. It has an immediate reference and a later reference. And I think you can find that maybe and Isaiah 14 and, and Ezekiel 28. A lot of people talk about uh, Satan was Lucifer, and he was an angel, he was the choir leader, he was the whatever, whatever, whatever. That's pulled from Isaiah 14, and the Latin Vulgate, not the original Hebrew, the Latin translation of the Bible, and it's in the King James Version that talks about Lucifer the day star, and most modern translations don't even translate it exactly that way. I'm just telling you, it's not quite as clear. Be careful when you say, oh yeah, the Bible talks about Lucifer and he was the choir leader and da 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 You dig into these passages before you fire some of those things off. Uh, Luke 10. I gave you Luke 10. You remember when Jesus sent the disciples out and they come back and they say, man, mission was great. Demons do what we tell them to do. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And there's about 800 explanations for what Jesus means there. I think what he's saying is, I saw Satan's original fall way back 
And what's happening now is the playing out of that. But not all commentators agree with that. So you can sort out Luke 10 and make sense of it uh, yourself. I gave you Genesis 6, 2 Peter 2, and Jude 1.6. As if all that's not debated enough, go dig in those passages and see what you think those guys are talking about. I think what they're talking about, people think this is crazy. You want people to think you're crazy. I think what those passages are talking about is a group of angels who rejected the place that God had for them and rebelled and went outside of their God-given place of authority and then were punished for that rebellion. But again, you can, you can sort this out for yourself. I'm just telling you, I think Revelation 12 is describing uh, rebellious angels. I think that's the most likely interpretation in my view. Not everybody agrees with that. Now, here's something I'm actually much more confident in. The time period of 1,260 days, which is 42 months, which is three and a half years, which is a time and a times and a half a time. It's all referring to the same period is the period of time after the ascension of Jesus and before the return of Jesus. And I think this section of Revelation makes this super, super clear that this period begins when the child is caught up. I think that's the ascension of Jesus. He's caught up to heaven. Jesus ascends to heaven. And it culminates at the end of this section, chapter 14, when Jesus returns. Now, we've talked about different views of Revelation. The preterist view says everything in Revelation has already been fulfilled. And the preterist view says that this 1,260 days is a literal 1,260 days. And it came to culmination in A.D. 66 when the Jews, uh, not 70, but A.D. 66 when the Jews faced an intense persecution. So that's the preterist view. Uh, the dispensational futurist view, popular view around the part of the world where we live, says that this is a literal 1,260 days that will take place at the end within a period that is often referred to as the Great Tribulation. And I'm saying to you, based on the context of Revelation 12 and 13 and 14, I don't think that you are to take hardly any numbers in Revelation literally I think they all have symbolic value and I think it's clear from this section and what we read in 10 and 11 and what we'll read after this that he's talking about uh, the interadvental period that can be your vocabulary word for the day the interadvental period the first advent advent we celebrate at Christmas so Christ's coming and all of his work culminating in his ascension his second coming his second advent this would be the period of time in between there. So I gave you Beale, quote from Beale. Three and a half years have been established as the time of tribulation. It's predicted in Daniel 7, 9, and 12. And he's saying all these talk about the same thing. Commences at Christ's ascension, continues until his return. Of all John's references of this period, uh, 12, 6 is the clearest in identifying the temporal boundaries. Undoubtedly here, the limited age extends from the resurrection of Christ, which is connected with his ascension until his final appearance. And I would agree with Beale here. So here's the, the picture being described. Uh, there's a people of God. God establishes these people. And he plans to bring a Messiah into the world through these people. And God has an enemy, the serpent, the devil, Satan, who wants to destroy that child, who wants to destroy the Messiah, 
And he's not able to do this because the child is caught up. And the woman is sent into the wilderness, uh, into the world, and she is protected until Christ comes back. So, real quick, look at verse 1. John said, a great sign appeared in heaven. And in verse 3, he said, another sign appeared in heaven. And I think those words are important. And I think John is saying to you in these signs, these are not all exactly literal one-for-one events. But this is describing, John is seeing a vision that describes the whole scope of redemptive history and what happened in the Old Testament leading up to the birth of the Messiah. So that's the woman, the dragon, uh, the stars swept down in the time period. Okay, The war. Let's talk about the war in heaven. John saw war in heaven that resulted in Satan being defeated. It says there was no place for him. He was thrown down. And this defeat was secured in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So I draw your attention to a couple of things. And I ask you to really think for a second because there's some, some big ideas being described here. Satan's the god of this world, prince of the power of the air. Uh, he's the ruler of this world. In John 12, verse 31 Uh, It's six days before Jesus is crucified. And he says to the disciples, the time has come for the ruler of the world to be cast out. After all the things he's done and taught and said and all the exorcisms and everything, something's about to happen in Jesus' mind six days from the Passover where the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. Um, Verse 10 in our passage says the kingdom and the salvation of Christ have come. Verse 11 says Satan was conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, Verse 12 says there's rejoicing that Satan was thrown down. And so this is what I think John is describing to us in this chapter. I do think that there was a pre-creation primordial fall of Satan. And I do agree cautiously that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are describing that to you in symbolic prophetic ways but if you've read the old testament and you've read what the old testament has to say about satan three times satan shows up in the old testament twice he's in god's presence which is kind of weird right because you're like i thought he got thrown down i thought he got kicked out what is he doing in god's presence in job He's just up in heaven, presumably, talking, yip-yapping with God about, hey, there's Job, what do you think about Job? And like, I thought you got kicked out, how'd you get in here? And then in Zechariah, he's up there talking, he's like, look at Joshua, the high priest, he's dirty, his clothes are dirty, he's unworthy. And there's this back and forth going on. What's he doing in those stories with Job and Zechariah? He's accusing them, he's slandering them, he's bringing these charges against them of their guilt Um, and I think this being cast out here in Revelation 12 is directly connected with the blood of the lamb and I would draw your attention you read on your own Colossians 2 and Romans 8 Colossians 2 says that at the cross the spiritual forces of evil were disarmed And the way that they were disarmed is that the record of debt that stood against us was nailed to the cross. These charges that Satan is bringing against God's people were paid for. And 
these powers of evil were disarmed. And in Romans 8, Paul says, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? What's going to separate God's people from God's love? Nothing. No height, no depth, no demon, no angel, no spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. Nothing is going to be able to separate God's people from his love. And I think what happened at the cross and what John's describing is that Satan, who's been bringing these accusations against God's people, and guess what? They're accurate. We're sinful people. The debt was paid, and Satan no longer has any accusation to bring against the people of God. So when you read this, remember the pictures I showed you at the first? All these angels with swords, and they're fighting, and it looks like a... Marvel movie or something like that I think might be helpful to take all the swords out of your mind for a second and to think about a courtroom scene where God's the judge and Satan's the prosecuting attorney and he's making a very convincing case against you as a sinful person and Christ enters on your behalf and his blood is the payment that pays your debt and makes you right with God. And Satan no longer has any accusation to bring against the people of God. And he is in a sense cast out of the courtroom. I think that's what John's describing here. So some of this becomes clear when you think about the, the name Satan and devil. Just to be clear, some of you may know this. Satan is a Hebrew word, Satan. And it means adversary or accuser. He accuses God's people of their sin. He reminds them and he reminds God of their sin. Devil comes from the Greek word diablos. It means slanderer or accuser. And the ancient serpent described here connects it all with Genesis chapter 3. So I think that's what John's describing. It's a, it's a remarkable scene as he's cast out. Uh, John witnesses the continuation of the conflict as Satan continued to pursue the people of God and God continued to protect his people. So this is the end of chapter 12. He turns his attention to the offspring of the woman and he wants to destroy them first peter 5 8 says satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour i think that's what john's describing to us uh, all this stuff about eagle's wings you can find your futuristic dispensational guys who want to talk about osprey helicopters and planes and this is referring to all that it's clearly exodus 19 deuteronomy 32 isaiah 40 God says to his people over and over and over again, I saved you on eagle's wings. He says it to them over and over and over again. Not once did a literal eagle come and pick God's people up and take them anywhere. Never happened. But God's describing with vivid imagery how he saved them in dramatic fashion. And John's doing the exact same thing. Uh, let me give you some insight, I think, on this river that comes from the dragon's mouth. That's a strange thing. He spits out this river. To attack the people. The river comes from where? What comes out of your mouth? Spit. Small rivers. Words. You speak with your mouth. Jesus is described in this book as having something coming out of his mouth. What is it? Sword. Is it a literal sword sticking out of his face? No, it's his word is powerful. Okay? It's the same kind of image being described here. You can get on Google Images and find dragons spitting out rivers and the craziest stuff you want to... I mean, it's weird. It's wacky, the stuff that's out there. Not talking about a literal river flowing out of a mouth of a dragon. He's saying that the devil wants to slander and accuse God's people. 
with his mouth. But God is protecting his people, and he's saving them from these accusations. Uh, I gave you a quote here from Beal. He says something interesting. Many ancient mythologies contain a story of an evil usurper who is doomed to be vanquished by a yet unborn prince. A lot of non-Christian scholars of Revelation look at this story and say, oh yeah, everybody's got one of those stories. John's just ripping it off from this culture or that culture. Everybody's got one of these. And this common idea of a prince who's going to come and save the day, they say, oh yeah, every culture has this. The Bible's not original. It's just ripping off all these other faiths. Uh, if you take a statistics class, one of the most important things you learn in statistics is correlation does not always prove causation. And sometimes you can see there is a correlation in things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one thing caused another thing. And I would agree, there are many ancient stories about an unborn prince who's going to come and save everything. And I don't mean that I don't take that to mean the Bible's ripping all those stories off. I take that to mean there is an ancient memory of Genesis 3.15 in all of these cultures that have spread out all over the face of the earth. An ancient memory that goes back before Babel, before the flood, to say the offspring of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. That's the basic story that Beale's talking about right here. And that's the story we just read in Revelation 12. The offspring of the woman will come and deal with evil and crush the serpent and win the victory. Now let me make one last point before we read Revelation 13. Uh, the dragon wanted to eat this baby. Did he eat the baby? The dragon wanted to uh, fight a war in heaven. Did he win that war? The dragon wanted to get the woman and her offspring. Did he get the woman and the offspring? Okay, no. He's 0 for 3. In Revelation 12. He's tried three things. They've all been miserable failures. And chapter 13 I think picks up on that. And describes his further schemes. And what he aims to do in our lives.